0: you're listening listening to hold that thought
1: from arts and sciences at washington university in st louis thank you for listening to hold that thought i'm claire navarro this week to continue our series on health and healing we're joined by anthropologist ea quinn Quinn focuses much of her research on an incredibly interesting, important fluid that you might not think too much about. That is, of course, unless you're a new parent. I'm talking about breast milk. And how exactly does one start studying human milk for a living,
0: you might be wondering? Well, I suppose it actually started with mummies and not, you know, the British way of pronouncing mothers, um, but with actual naturally occurring desert mummies.
1: No, anthropology labs don't have samples of ancient mummy milk in storage somewhere. Instead, as a student, Quinn took tiny bone samples from mummies and by analyzing the samples, looked into questions about diet and nutrition.
0: So I started with mummies and after a year of removing ribs and dissolving them and doing biogeochemistry, I decided what was really missing for me personally were people, and I really wanted to be engaged in talking to people. Mummies, as it turns out,
1: aren't so good at talking. But you know who is? New moms. Mothers are also great people to talk to if you care about public health issues, like Quinn does because a lot of what makes people healthy or unhealthy starts really early in a person's life
0: there's this whole early critical period that establishes your body's biology even like your brain's biology and that affects how you'll grow and how you' how you'll mature even how your metabolism will function so all of these are important in terms of thinking about um, risks of diseases like cancer heart disease um, Depression is one we're starting to find is linked to developmental origins. So all of these have these early developmental implications.
1: So what role does breast milk have in these really important early stages of life? This isn't an easy question to fully answer because human milk is not a simple, uniform liquid. All of the stuff in milk, the nutrients, the fat, the hormones, is different from place to place, person to person. Even one mom's milk changes over time. Milk is what anthropologists call plastic. That is changeable, adaptable. Quinn wants to find out why.
0: Is our milk incredibly plastic? Because we live in an enormous variety of environments and we need plastic milk to make plastic babies, like biologically plastic. Babies with lots of flexibility and tremendous capacity to, to thrive because we are the most geographically widespread primate. We occupy everything from incredibly hot equatorial Africa to you know, incredibly cold Siberia. And we don't understand how any of that variation is impacting infant growth or milk composition and if they're interrelated. So that's ultimately kind of where the major questions are coming from. But how
1: do you go about answering these questions? Where do you go? What do you do? Here's a clue. It's not a lab here at Washington University.
0: You go to the extremes, right? You go somewhere where the signal will be just loud and clear. And so um, one of my colleagues had a site in the Himalayas in the um, Valley of Nubri, Nepal. And uh, Jeff Childs invited me because the community had interest in women's health. He invited me to come to the site. Um, We made our first trip in 2013 on a shoestring budget with a tiny but wonderful Winnergrin grant.
1: Since then, the team got funding from the National Science Foundation for a four-year-long study in Newbury. From November 2015 to January 2018, Quinn and her partners are tracking every baby born in this remote Himalayan valley.
0: What we're doing is just observation, no intervention, and um, collecting data as to when children stop growing as efficiently, as to when um, supplemental foods are introduced, to when kids get sick. We're essentially documenting all of that so we can actually see Um, in kind of a public health framework where the risks are instead of going in as some organizations can do in some communities and say, oh, it must be X, let's fix X. And it wasn't X at all. There are a lot
1: of possibilities for this health risk X in a place like Newbury, especially for new moms and infants. Life at such a high altitude can be pretty extreme and not just because of the low oxygen levels.
0: For example, you have a can get quite cold. So you've got c- cold stress, you've got a lot of UV exposure, or the opposite. You can actually have a tendency towards um, rickets and vitamin D deficiencies because it's so cold, you tend to stay pretty covered up, babies tend to stay inside, um, there may be limited access to fresh vegetables for most of the year, and malnutrition and undernutrition may be chronic problems. So these are all going to be important factors in terms of influencing maternal and child health.
1: Since Newbury is a community with lots of animals around, parasites and bacteria can also cause health problems. Quinn is interested in how kids grow and thrive in this environment and how breast milk helps them do it. But there's a bit of a problem. The same conditions that make the valley so important to study also
0: makes it pretty hard to do research there. In Newbury, uh, there is limited electricity, limited running water, uh, no motorized vehicles, and um, no way to keep samples frozen at negative 80.
1: This makes packing for a research trip to Newbury a little more complicated than for your average flight.
0: Every time I go over there, I have between three and six bags to check including a giant liquid nitrogen tank that we have dubbed the mushroom because it literally looks like one of those giant mushrooms from like the Mario Brothers games. And it weighs about 65 pounds and it will keep samples frozen for uh, two weeks. This most recent time, we also took two portable tanks of liquid nitrogen that had to go empty. These are the tanks that we actually use in the field uh, to keep the samples frozen.
1: Quinn and the tanks first fly from St. Louis to Kathmandu, then get on a bus, and finally take a helicopter to Newbury. From there, porters carry the smaller tanks on their backs from village to village.
0: So um, logistically, this is a huge project with lots of moving parts and lots of people to keep track of, um, because basically we're setting up a field lab in every community. And we're processing the samples we're processing fecal samples we're processing milk samples we're processing saliva samples um in the field and getting everything frozen in these tanks and then shipped back in that safe shipper so you know if you ask me you know what do i want on the plane going i'm mostly just thinking god this is a long flight and coming back the whole time i'm thinking please don't let the samples thaw or blow up the plane or leak or get stopped in customs, and I never see them again. So basically 30 hours of that nonstop. And then when the mushroom magically comes off the conveyor belt at O'Hare surrounded by strollers, all you can think of is, yes, yes, it worked! (laughs) And then there's the, oh, now I have to get it through customs.
1: Then even after clearing customs, the work is in some ways just beginning. In her lab here in St. Louis, Quinn continues to work with the samples and the data. And back in Newbury, data collection continues. Even when she's not there, all of the infants and moms continue to be tracked.
0: They're followed monthly by field assistants, um, which are college-educated women from the community who've moved back to the community to serve as field assistants. And they track down and they measure every baby and every mother every single month. And these are Uh, remarkable women who are doing this research with us and I feel really it's it's their work and it's their passion that's making this really happen because they are the ones on the ground interfacing with the mothers who are used to the weird looks when it's like okay now we need some breast milk or actually we really want your baby's diapers and the mothers never bat an eye um, so we've had you know, remarkable success with a tremendous team of field assistants and community members who have really bought into the project and are really excited about it.
1: These assistants record detailed information like weight, height, and skin fold thickness. As for the breast milk samples, those are analyzed for things like nutrition content, immune factors, and hormones. And the team is finding that breast milk in Newbury really is different than milk from a mom in St. Louis or elsewhere in the U.S.
0: There's a tremendous number of differences. The primary area is going to be the immune factors. Um, the immune factors in milk from women in Newbury are very high which makes sense. It's an agro society, so there's a lot of animals around. There's a lot of animal waste. Um, mortality rates are much higher among kids. So it actually makes sense from a maternal investment perspective that you would pump your milk full of immune factors. And we see much lower levels in St. Louis or in American women.
1: Once a mother in Newbury is exposed to a virus or some bacteria that might get her sick, she'll start producing antibodies, and then pass along that protection to her baby. Even more amazingly, there's new evidence, Quinn says, that the mom herself doesn't have to be sick for this to happen. An infection in the baby will cause the mom's body to start producing these
0: antibodies. How does that work? The leading theory right now is the so-called backwash theory, which is infant saliva Um, which would have the infectious particles and also the preliminary infant immune response during breastfeeding may be um, sucked back into the breast.
1: So it's not just a one-way street in breastfeeding. Milk comes out, and a little bit of baby saliva goes in? The backwash theory may seem gross, but you have to admit it's also pretty amazing. Anyway, however it happens exactly, the immune factors end up in the breast milk. And by looking at the milk, Quinn can figure out what types of illnesses affect the families.
0: So if we see a lot of things targeted at Giardia, then it suggests that there may be a lot of Giardia in the population. And that certainly is also something that the fecal samples allow us to to do, is actually do some of that um, pinpointing. But we're also just interested in, in... better understanding the developmental trajectory to see when there may be changes and also just understanding the costs of producing all of this wonderful rich milk full of fat full of immune factors to mothers to see if there may be um, ways mothers need to be supported in additional ways nutritionally socially All this information will give health
1: professionals in Newbury valuable insight into how to help mothers and infants stay more healthy. But Quinn isn't just interested in the women and children in this one valley. She believes that having a greater scientific understanding of breast milk will benefit all families, even families that don't breastfeed.
0: As mammals, we're actually kind of exceptional in that We don't all um, uniformly provide our our species-specific milk to our offspring. We use commercial infant formulas. And part of understanding the variation in human milk is that it actually helps us to better understand the health impacts of these commercial formulas. And actually think strategically about ways to promote infant health for every infant, not just the ones that... Um, have the opportunity to be breastfed, but also what we learn from breast milk can help us inform all models of infant health. It's not just another person being like, you're a bad person if you don't breastfeed. It's using breast milk to answer a lot of questions and really inform us about what is normal infant health so that we can promote the health of all babies. In Quinn's lab, That means she and
1: a team of students will continue to comb through the data. And the future of this kind of research has incredible possibilities. For example, Quinn wants everyone out there to know one more thing about human milk. It has stem cells in it. Stem cells that are similar to those found in human fetuses.
0: So if you give them the right signals, they can become become a kidney. If you give them the right signals, they can become muscle tissue. If you give them the right signals, they can become cardiac tissue. And they're in human milk. And yet I feel like, you know, probably more people are like, oh, there's toxins in breast milk, because that makes the national news. But nobody except me is running up and down the street screaming, well, okay, me and 200 other milk researchers are running up and down the street screaming, There are stem cells in human milk! I I feel like it just never made the public radar and yet I feel like it's my job to tell every single undergraduate that comes into any one of my classes this. I'll have to figure out a way how to work it into our introductory seminar. I usually just yell it at them. (laughs) By the way, guys, there are stem cells in human milk. You need to know this. Quinn hopes in the
1: next five years or so she won't have to be yelling this in the streets anymore. The science of isolating those stem cells is now starting in a couple of labs around the world. In the meantime, for the next few years, she and her team will continue their work in Newbury. She'll be taking another trip there soon. And after that, in one way or another, she'll keep working with this amazing liquid we call breast milk.
0: I can't let milk go because it's too awesome of a fluid to let go.
1: Thank you so much to E.A. Quinn for joining Hold That Thought. For many more ideas to explore, please visit us at holdthatthought.wustl.edu, where you can find all of our past podcasts and links to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, PRX, and now TuneIn. You can also search for us on Facebook or Twitter. Thanks for listening.